The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When it comes to mobile security, I think it's time that both Apple and Google are pressured to start changing their model and they need to start providing forensic analysis capabilities to consumers and businesses so that they can actually understand if their phone has been hacked or not. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 20th, 2021. It was a heck of a week in cybersecurity. The Israeli firm NSO Group was outed by a consortium of newspapers and media entities for its snooping software Pegasus, which seems to have gathered data from the phones of a shockingly large number of people. Then, starting Sunday evening and into Monday morning, the Biden administration announced a multilateral response to China's Microsoft Exchange server hack, there were indictments. There was a toughly worded statement, but there were no sanctions. Was it enough? Joining me in the virtual jungle studio to go over all the events were Matt Tate, aka Pwn All the Things, Chief Operating Officer of Corellium, and Dimitri Alperovich, the founder of the Silverado policy accelerator and the co-founder of CrowdStrike. We talked about the Biden administration's response on China. We talked about the disclosure of Pegasus and what that means for iPhone security for Apple and for the Israeli government. And we talked about mobile device security. Is it hopeless? And should companies just focus on improving forensics? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 20th, Dmitry Alperovich and Matt Tate on the latest in cybersecurity. So we had two big stories break over the weekend, and uh, let's just start by walking through what we know. Matt, why don't you tell us about the Pegasus story, and Dmitry, why don't you tell us about what the administration has announced about China? Matt, get us started. So the basic gist of the Pegasus story is that uh, the Washington Post and a bunch of other uh, news outlets have reported about 50,000 exploitations in the wild uh, of a piece of software known as Pegasus, which is the implant and exploit delivery mechanism of the NSO Group, which is an Israeli-based cybersecurity company which developed this uh, surveillance tool. About 50,000 individuals are on a list, and many of these individuals are are claimed to have been targeted by NSO Group or their clients. 
Uh, this includes uh, journalists, heads of state, business individuals, and so on. And this uh, tool was used in order to hack into these individuals' iPhones in particular, uh, also a bunch of Android devices, with the purpose of then being able to surveil those people's devices, extract things like uh, emails and calls and contact information and so on. And NSO Group seems to deny a component of the story or maybe the whole story. How much of the facts of this are materially in dispute at this point? So NSO Group is, is sort of denying essentially the, the bulk of the, the, the claims, especially uh, claiming that the, the names on the list or the, the phone numbers on this list uh, don't represent the people that have been targeted, that there may be uh, uh, entities on this list which were not targeted by NSO for whatever reason. And they're also claiming that they don't have direct knowledge of the exact list of people that are targeted generally, that it's, it's up to their clients. They also uh, make a couple of claims uh, relating to uh, whether or not uh, US individuals can be targeted. Uh, they claim that the technology inside their targeting system prevents uh, targeting U.S. phone numbers and non-U.S. phone numbers whilst they're physically within the United States. Uh, the Washington Post has an article out today which is suggesting that that might be accurate. But yeah, so what Amnesty did was they published uh, essentially some forensic details from a number of phones which appear to have been targeted, which the, the forensic details show what, what broadly amounts to exploitation attempts and uh, some relatively good forensic artifacts that, that do seem to indicate NSO Group's Pegasus implant was deployed on some of these systems. Uh, and the, these systems range from, you know, relatively old models of iPhones right the way up to uh, fully patched latest uh, uh, models of iPhones, uh, which suggests that the, the capability is, is relatively advanced for NSO and that uh, they are targeting some substantial number of people on this list. And you mentioned Amnesty. How did they get involved in this story? That's a good question. Um, so essentially, uh, Amnesty uh, appears to have obtained parts of this list, um, uh, done a, a bunch of sort of forensics on some of the command and control infrastructure as well. And what they've uh, managed to do is they've managed to contact some of these individuals, gain access to their devices, uh, jailbreak these devices in order to access certain forensic pieces of information, some of the internal databases, which were essentially uh, a quote unquote cleaned by NSO group uh, as part of their exploitation attempt, which is a, a relatively strong indicator that this particular act was involved. And they were able to, with the, the, the phones that they were able to gain access to, identify uh, uh, both some of the original messages that were sent as a means of uh, tricking people into installing this uh, or being targeted with this exploit, and then some of the forensic artifacts as to what happened afterwards. All right. So, Dimitri, meanwhile, in adversary uh, cybersecurity land, the Biden administration last night and today made a major set of announcements, or maybe major, uh, about China and cybersecurity. I have read the statement, or tried to anyway. It is long, and it is not clear to me how much it really says. In your estimation, what did the Biden administration say about China, and how significant is it? Well, there were th two things that actually happened today. The first was the statement by both the United States and allies 
And the White House is saying that this is the largest coalition that they have ever assembled to call out Chinese militias behavior. It includes European Union, it includes NATO, it includes a variety of different countries, Japan, Australia, and others, all coming together to call out China and their use of Ministry of State Security, their intelligence agencies, contractors to hack exchange servers all over the world in that Hafnium operation uh, last spring to indiscriminately compromise them and also open the door, as I've written for Lawfare uh, last spring, to uh, further exploitation of these actors, uh, of these victims by, by their actors. In, in conjunction with that, the DOJ has also released some indictments of uh, Ministry of State Security actors, which, uh, you know, is obviously always very welcome to highlight um, the nefarious things that they've been up to in cyber. But I'll tell you one thing that struck me as missing, glaringly so, is any sanctions against either those contractors, against MSS, or other parts of the Chinese government in response to this activity. And it's particularly glaring when you look at the fact that we have sanctioned Russia for nefarious cyber activity, including most recently for SolarWinds. We have sanctioned Iranian actors. We have sanctioned North Korean actors. The only country we've never sanctioned for cyber activity is China. In fact, our European friends have sanctioned them in the last few months. We are the laggards here, and it's really, really striking. And, and for the life of me, I do not understand why we have not yet done so, and I only hope that it's coming soon. Well, one possible explanation for the lack of sanctions is that they were keen to have a very big coalition announce this because you know, news of the day, biggest coalition ever, right? And maybe not everybody is on board with a sanctions approach. Is that a possibility? Or do you think do you think the coalition we amassed would have been adequate to, you know, would have all been game to do some sanctions as well? Well, no, I, I don't think they would have been, although as I mentioned, European Union has done sanctions for the cloud hopper intrusions, but we, we didn't need to ask them to do so. We could have acted unilaterally on the sanctions front and joined in with uh, on the statement with the others to, to call people out, just as no one else has indicted MSS officers as we did today. That was a unilateral action by the Department of Justice. So I, I don't understand why one had to depend on the other. It does not strike me as a very convincing argument. So one you know feature of this that seems continuous with previous policy is the what I sometimes call the indict and complain policy, right? That, you know, if confronted by these very systemic cyber intrusions, we indict people that we're never going to get custody of or we're, we can't count on getting custody of, and we issue statements uh, of condemnation. Uh, sometimes they are accompanied by sanctions, sometimes not. The Biden administration has definitely sought to portray this uh, response as a significant escalation of U.S. and allied responses to Chinese cyber attacks. Do you do you buy that it's a substantial advance or is it really just a continuation of sort of prior policy? No, I, I do think it's a continuation. I, I, I think the coalition that they've assembled here is impressive, although there have been other 
statements calling out China with allies that perhaps have fewer countries, but nevertheless, there's precedent for that. Uh, but on the issue of indictments, I don't agree with you, actually, Ben. I, I have listened with great interest to your podcast last week with Jack Goldsmith talking about this issue. I do think that indictments are very valuable for a number of reasons. One, it illustrates both to the domestic audience as well as our allies and adversaries alike that our attribution capabilities in cyberspace are immense. We're able to identify not just the countries who are doing these activities, we're able to identify individuals, we're able to identify all sorts of details about the operations that are incredibly impressive when you read those indictments. That's number one. Number two, I, I don't agree that they, they only serve uh, a, a public relations purpose because the fact of the matter is we have arrested numerous actors uh, over the years when they decided to travel in places where we have extradition treaties and manage to extradite them. We've done that for lots of Russian cyber criminals. We've done that even for an MSS officer that was lured to Belgium, I believe uh, about a year and a half ago, was arrested in Belgium. Uh, on our behalf, extradited to the U.S. and is now sitting in the U.S. jail, a very senior MSS officer who was recruiting people to break into American companies. So they do serve a purpose. And a lot of the people, particularly contractors working for the Chinese government, do want to travel. They want to you know, take advantage of the money that they're earning from the Chinese government. They want to potentially one day start cybersecurity companies and sell to customers all over the world. None of that is going to be possible once you're indicted. So I do think that they serve a very important deterrent effect. And I've actually talked about how indicting specifically Chinese contractors, not Chinese government employees, has had an effect where some of these contractors decided to shut down and no longer operate. We haven't seen that from any other country. It hasn't worked on the Iranians, the North Koreans or the Russians, but it has worked in some cases in China. So, Dimitri, what was your reaction to the Pegasus story? This is sort of I guess the kind of company that a bunch of the people that that indictments prevent them from setting up cybersecurity companies. This is the kind of cybersecurity company, I suppose, that some of them would want to set up. How big a deal do you think the Pegasus story is? You know, uh, obviously, there's nothing new here in terms of we, we've already known that NSA has been selling their software to all sorts of unsavory characters. We've known about mobile exploitation for many years. But the scale uh, of this operation is staggering, and I think it highlights to the general public the vulnerabilities that we have in the mobile ecosystem. And in particular, I think it highlights a very important point that, that we may be missing in this overall discussion of the details, and that is that when you look at iOS, if you look at Apple's uh, mobile operating system, it is probably the most secure piece of code that anyone has ever produced. Apple, for a variety of reasons, including mostly from commercial interest perspective, has invested tremendous amount into making that, that operating system as secure as possible. And yet, despite all those efforts, despite the fact that it's very difficult to install software on those devices, despite that it has all sorts of sandboxing capabilities, both at the user mode and kernel level, you're still able to see such vast exploitation of those devices. And I, I think the implications here are twofold. One, that people that say that we need to build more secure software as a, as a solution to our cybersecurity problems are just plain wrong because Apple has tried to do that and invested more than most people will ever be able to afford and has not succeeded. Secondly, when it comes to mobile security, I think it's time that both Apple and Google 
a pressure to start changing their model and uh, start to appreciate that they can't build a perfect device that's uh, impenetrable, and they need to st start providing forensic analysis capabilities to consumers and businesses so that they can actually understand if their phone has been hacked or not. Almost no one can do today what Amnesty was able to do with those specific phones and jailbreak them and, and do the deep forensic analysis. It's very, very difficult to do, very technically challenging. Apple does not make it easy and does not provide any tools for you to do so, and that needs to stop. Matt, do you agree with that, that the lesson of this is that the ultimate security of mobile devices is mythological and that we should we should really be investing in forensic analysis capacity? Yes, I, I agree with pretty much everything that Dimitri just said. One of the things that actually sort of stood out to me in that Amnesty analysis, uh, their analysis was sort of uh, very, very deep and very, very technical. And, and you know, whoever it was that, that worked on that, you know, uh, deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, but specifically that, you know, the latest version of iOS was targeted on, you know, the latest models. And the latest models have, you know, some very, very advanced hardware mitigations to try and prevent intrusions of this type. Uh, the latest uh, builds of iOS are designed so that uh, iMessage in particular, which was the, the thing that was exploited, uh, all of the processing for this happens inside a, a very locked down container, which Apple calls Blastdoor. And, you know, uh, NSO was still able to, you know, breach through all of these defenses that have taken place. And I think it's a really important point that these defenses can be breached. They are being breached in the wild. And I think it's something that should alarm a lot of folks that, you know, the, the list of targets here is as large as it is, and that this was discovered what, in what appears to be, you know, uh, uh, not being caught directly, but being sort of caught sort of uh, uh, through the infrastructure adjacent to the attack. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I mean, that th this attack was not discovered through, you know, Apple discovering it. It was not discovered because one of the, the users had some uh, uh, security software on their phone that was able to detect the attack. Rather, the, the, the list of targets was obtained tangential to that. And then some of those targeted individuals had forensics done on their phone. And that forensics that was done on their phone was not done by Apple. It was not done by security software on the device. In fact, uh, it would not be possible to do this type of uh, forensic activity on an ordinary iPhone device. Uh, what Amnesty had to do was they had to make use of a jailbreak. And what jailbreaks are is they essentially exploit vulnerabilities in the device in order to disable some of Apple's uh, lockdown functionality in order to be able to allow the forensics people to access some of these files, which then they were able to, to access and that allowed them to see that this was NSO Group's implant uh, and what was going on under the hood. And I think that should be alarming because it tells us two different things. First of all, that this mythology that iPhones are, are so secure might actually be that we just don't have any visibility into you know some of these attacks taking place that you know maybe there's a lot of attacks taking place and we just don't know about it and so we're mistakenly believing that iPhones are ex extremely hard when actually it's just that we can't see and second of all that the ability to run security software the ability to you know run some of these forensics tools is so extremely difficult it's not merely that you know 
uh, a user hasn't enabled it is that a user cannot enable it. Apple actively engineers their device to prevent these types of jailbreaks. And a consequence of this is that performing this type of forensics is really, really difficult and something that Apple actively tries to prevent. And I think that's something that's very problematic and we need to sort of come to terms with in the cybersecurity industry. Is Google similarly situated in that regard or or are they less rigid? I mean, Google is dramatically, dramatically less rigid in the event that you are on a, a not SIM-locked device, then you can uh, perform a surprisingly you know, wide range of forensics on your device. It is still considerably more locked down than, say, you know, Microsoft Windows, where, you know, a, a, a huge range of like antivirus software and, you know, uh, threat detection software is able to, to run relatively, you know, freely. Um, but it is is dramatically more available for forensics than iPhones, where it's a very hostile environment for security companies. You know, I just want to add two, two key points to what Matt has said. Matt is absolutely right. We have no idea how big this problem is. Most of our phones indeed could be compromised right now, and we just wouldn't know it. Which, which is just absolutely scary thought when you think about the type of information that your phone has access to with a microphone, with a camera that could be turned on surreptitiously and so forth. The second point is that when you look at the advances we have made in the cybersecurity industry, particularly in the last 10 years, the biggest advance, I would argue, has been sort of the change in strategy, the assumed breach mentality, assume that someone is going to get into your network, assume that they're going to penetrate all of the defenses you put in place. And, and the goal is not to stop them from doing that. The goal is to find them as quickly as possible before they do any damage. The phone model, the phone security model, both on iOS and to some extent on Android, is completely the opposite of that. It is still stuck in the 80s and 90s where we're trying to prevent someone from getting in when we know it's, it's impossible. And in fact, what Apple has done in particular is, is more advanced than we've ever done in terms of building both hardware and software security-based mechanisms. And as Matt has just said, it has still completely been broken by NSO and probably many others. So we need to pressure both of these vendors to change uh, direction and still continue to invest in, in obviously making things uh, more difficult to, to break into, but understand that you will never succeed in that and give consumers the tools to determine if their phone may have been compromised. Give us the visibility. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So what should we assume about our own phones? So we are three people who participate in public discussions, 
who have, you know, people out there who don't like us very much, some of whom may include some foreign intelligence components. Uh, should we just operate on the assumption that, you know, use signal, don't use signal, use, you know, encryption, don't use encryption? the phones themselves are going to be compromised and shedding a lot of information about you? Or should we operate on the assumption that a list of 50,000 targets is a numerator and the denominator is, you know, many, many, many decimal points? Beyond that, you operate on the assumption that the technology is not necessarily fully secure, but reasonably secure. So, yeah, I, I think generally, like what one of the other things that I think is quite important from the, the NSO story is when you look at the list of their clients, these, you know, they're, they're, there's a bunch of substantial countries there, but we're, we're sort of excluding, you know, a very, very large number of, you know, much more substantial countries with much more substantial investments in surveillance. And so in the event that, you know, the, the list of targets that NSO has been, you know, uh, or, or their particular piece of software has been, uh, surveilling, then really what we ought to be doing is extrapolating upwards and, and sort of coming to the conclusion that the, the real list of total surveil targets on mobile devices globally is probably very, very dramatically larger than, than the, the list that we have here. Uh, and we also know, for instance, you know, in the past, uh, uh, zero days have been found uh, uh, used in the wild uh, ostensibly by the Chinese regime to spy on Uyghurs. I believe some of the estimates back then were, you know, that as many as a million devices might have been compromised. And I, I think when we start looking at that kind of scale of numbers, and we start thinking, you know, why are we finding these being exploited in the wild so rarely, that, 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 that first of all, gives us you know, uh, uh, real concerns over visibility of this. You know, the the uh, threat intelligence community is relatively good, I think, uh, especially over the past year at discovering uh, vulnerabilities being exploited against, you know, Windows systems, against server systems. It, it really doesn't have a particularly good depth when it comes to sort of uncovering mobile exploitation attempts. And I, I think that's depressing and disappointing. Uh, but sort of, more to your point, you know, when it comes to uh, how should we look at our own phones, the use of things like encryption, the use of things like signal reduces your overall exposure, right? So in the event that I decide to send you a signal message, Ben, uh, then in order for someone to be able to read that message, they need to have either my phone targeted or they need to have your phone targeted. And in the event that I choose a different platform where it's not end-to-end -end encrypted, then they can potentially gain access to that message by either compromising my device or your device or indeed the device in the middle, which is, you know, the server infrastructure. And so using some of these encrypted technologies does reduce the number of exploitation opportunities to gain access to some of these messages. So it is a helpful thing to do, but it's worth bearing in mind that these things are, are not a total solution in the event that you become interesting enough to, you know, people that have enough money or people that have enough influence uh, and their intelligence agencies or, or their uh, private contractor groups are, are going to put you on their list. I think the, 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 the moral of this NSO story is that if they really want to gain access to your device, they can. And once they have access to your device, they do have access to a very large amount of information. I agree with what Matt just said, and, and by the way, I will add to this that the most important feature of Signal, arguably, is not even the end-to-end -end encryption, although it's very important, but the disappearing messages feature, 
so that you can delete messages on both ends of the transaction so that even if your phone at some point does get compromised, at least they won't be able to go back and get your entire history of all your communications with, with people. So highly encourage everyone to enable that and, and reduce the time for storage um, to, to as, as, as small as, as absolutely possible. The other thing I would say is that when it comes to securing your phone, yes, assume that it's been compromised. I think the only way that you can ensure that it won't be compromised is if you never connected to you know, a 4G or 3G or 5G network, which uh, of course is incredibly difficult. You, you pretty much have to only use Wi-Fi and connect it to trusted access points uh, and never use the, the actual phone network, which, which dramatically obviously reduces the um, usefulness of that device. And to the extent that you can't do that, highly limit the number of people that would have access to your phone number. Also very difficult to do. And all you need is one person in your contact list who has your number to get compromised. And there goes your OPSEC. But um, certainly don't try to post it anywhere. Don't have it in your business cards and the like. Make, make the adversary work hard to, to discover it. I want to talk about the clients of companies like NSO Group. So uh, it is presumably not the NSO Group themselves that is doing the exploitation, at least not in countries where that exploitation itself would be illegal. It is presumably the clients of the companies that are using the tools that it creates to do exploitations on their own. Uh, what do we know about who the clients are and about to what extent they are constrained by the legal regimes of, say, governments like ours or the UK's? Yeah, so I mean, the list of their clients, uh, we don't have a total list, but the, the list uh, that's sort of been published recently includes uh, countries like Mexico, there's a lot of countries in the Middle East like Qatar, uh, Yemen, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, I think India was also on the list. So there's a bunch of, you know, uh, uh, big countries, but we're, we're not sort of talking about, you know, uh, uh, Western Europe, I think, for the most part. We're not talking about the US for the most part here. So what, what is, what's the implication of that? Is it really that, like, this is a set of tools that we should assume that the NSA and GCHQ have their own tools for these exploitations? This is kind of a private sector entity that's creating tools for governments that don't have capacity to develop them themselves? I think that would be a reasonable inference. Like, it, it, it's certainly not the case that, you know, the, 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 the countries that are not on this list are sitting on their hands, right? Uh, in the event that NSA really wants to get onto someone's mobile device, uh, I don't doubt that they're able to with, you know, the, the level of funding and level of talent that they have in-house. So, Dimitri, let's go back to the... China statement. When we last talked about Hafnium, the Microsoft Exchange server hack, uh, you made the argument both on Lawfare and on the podcast that, you know, people were focusing too much on solar winds and not enough on the indiscriminate nature of this hack. And you really urged a robust response. I'm curious how this response measures up. On the one hand, as you point out, it does not involve sanctions. 
On the other hand, it does involve a world community kind of, or at least European community and NATO and a um, bunch of other countries all apparently on the same page. How do you think this is going to be received by China and what kind of message do you think it's going to send? So I think it's a good first step, but insufficient and much more needs to be done. And I do wonder, I mean, it's a hypothetical, of course, um, and we will never know, but if it was Russia and not China who had conducted these exchange hacks, if uh, we would have seen action much, much sooner and if it would have been much stronger, if we would have seen sanctions and the like. As I've pointed out, solar winds was much less reckless, much less dangerous than this Chinese operation. So so uh, I think we, we have as close of an answer as we can possibly get to my hypothetical. But look, how will China react? They're not going to like this, and, and they're certainly not going to like a coalition of countries as big as this assembling against them and calling them out. They will have a very allergic reaction, most likely, to this, and they will try to lash out at individual countries, probably less likely us, but countries that they have leverage against, like Australia and others that they've uh, tried to penalize uh, over the last couple of years uh, on issues uh, as wide-ranging as COVID and Huawei, and they'll continue to do so, and in a way making the, the best case possible for us why other countries should join this coalition. China is our best friend in terms of building a coalition of countries to confront China by their own behavior. So they must know that, and yet they continue to behave this way. How do you understand their understanding of the situation? Just Is it just push, push, push until some higher force makes you stop? Or is there a strategic logic to it that is not obvious to me? I, I don't think it's strategic logic. I think sometimes we give them way too much credit, and they're oftentimes as impulsive and arrogant as, as anyone else and have become much more so under Xi Jinping. And, and as they've gotten a taste of that power, which has obviously has grown substantially in the last 20 years, they believe their time has come and that everyone needs to kowtow to China. And anytime that does not happen, they get irritated and angry and uh, like, like a petulant teenager. And I don't think that will change anytime soon. So, Matt, we've talked about the assumptions that that Apple makes in producing devices that are subject to this kind of attack. If you're Apple today, what are the responses that are available to you to this? And how do you respond in a fashion that, and I suppose for Google too, that creates confidence in, in, in the products? Well, one of the things that I would quite like Apple to do is, is I guess, three different sort of uh, uh, pillars. The first is that I, I think their approach generally of trying to in-house all security to, to basically say, we understand the system better than anybody else understands it. We understand the security features of it better than anyone else understands it. And so we should have the exclusive role of providing all of this security and, you know, to the exclusion really of other people. Uh, so to the extent that, for instance, uh, if you want to have a security research device, then you need to, you know, sign an Apple NDA and, you know, sign up to the Apple terms and conditions, you know, in the event that you want to be uh, uh, reporting vulnerabilities, you need to be doing this through, you know, Apple's approved vendor, like uh, through their approved process for doing this. I think that sort of 
deep, deep ingrained culture of control over all of the security that's taking place here and all the security research that's taking place here is unhelpful and, and clearly is not working. And allowing people to engage in this kind of research on their own devices, to be able to jailbreak their own devices, to be able to unlock their own devices, uh, would be helpful not just for the security community to be able to identify vulnerabilities and to report them, and also to report them at you know a fair price for what these bugs are actually clearly being traded for in sort of the offensive market. Uh, I think that would help to encourage good faith, serious security research from, you know, some of the best security researchers on these devices to identify some of these defects to help, you know, uh, uh, reduce the exposure. Uh, the second one is I think we've, inside Apple, there, there's sort of this view clearly that, that they can sort of mitigate around some of the, you know, core defects that some of the languages, some of the programming languages that they're using expose. So in this particular case, NSO Group was hacking into these devices. It appears it was through a vulnerability in one of the image parsing libraries. These libraries are written in, you know, very, very old languages called C and C++. They're not memory safe languages. And this means that these things are absolutely riddled with, you know, very serious security vulnerabilities. And Apple has taken the approach of rather than rewriting these into a language where you can prove that there's no vulnerabilities, they're trying to sort of uh, mitigate around them. They have, you know, software mitigations, hardware mitigations. They have, you know, uh, 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 running these pieces of software inside blast containers so that in the event that something goes wrong, then not much can happen. And I think that it's very clear they've put a, a, a very heavy amount of investment, more investment than, you know, uh, uh, most of their competitors into these technologies. And it's clearly also not working. So at this point, I think we sort of need to get to the point where we say, actually, some of these old defective, you know, uh, uh, ways of designing some of this code are not suitable for the, the modern era. And we need to get to a point of, you know, replacing some of this with, you know, provably safe code. And then this third line is, you know, Apple has this approach of saying, you know, that this device is, you know, going to be designed so that people can never gain access to it. But in the event that you do gain access to it, you're basically like, you know, that's the, the game over for, for the device. And I think that's a really problematic approach. That's not the approach that's taken in, in Windows, for instance, where you will have things like antivirus, which is designed to, you know, detect a virus after it's gained access to your system. And actually, a very large number of intrusions nowadays are being caught because of antivirus and threat intelligence organizations uh, and incident response firms being able to do like deep forensics on these uh, Windows-based infrastructures after a compromise has taken place. And based on the knowledge that they're able to obtain there, they're able to identify how the, the attackers broke in, what tools they're using that allows them to get better at attributing these attacks, which, you know, enables the government to sort of respond as well. And this sort of approach is something that I think Apple feels allergic to, but they need to get over. Uh, they need to get to a point where in the event that you're, you know, Sophos or CrowdStrike or, or you know, Mandiant or, or whatever, uh, you can install an app which is going to provide you some level of uh, additional protection and sort of breaking out of that, you know, containment where Apple believes that everything that it, that happens in security is their exclusive role, I think is very problematic. So, Dimitri, first of all, do you agree that that's a plausible way forward for Apple? But 
Uh, also, I'm interested in the state level. You know, when we're talking about China, we're talking about the state, uh, the Ministry of State Security. Here we are talking about an Israeli company, and the name Israel has not really passed many of our lips. Is that right? Or should, as a matter of policy, the United States have a set of issues to take up with the Israelis about this? I think it should. Look, it's pretty clear that Israel has used groups like NSO that provide cyber offensive capabilities as part of their diplomatic outreach in the region, as part of their attempts to build a closer relationship with Saudi Arabia and some of these other countries. And just to be clear, when you say Israel has used, you mean not that Israel has loosed NSO group against anybody, but that Israel has encouraged NSO group to do business with Gulf countries That's right. for the surveillance of their adversaries that Israel is trying to court for diplomatic purposes, right? Yeah, as part of their sort of cyber exploitation diplomacy, shall we call it. We used to have panda diplomacy, now we have cyber exploitation diplomacy. Um, so absolutely right, they're, they're using these companies as a way to ingrain themselves closer with some of these Gulf countries, with Saudi Arabia in particular, in the hopes that it will lead to, to peace deals, as we saw with the Abraham Accords last year. But I do think that the U.S. government has core interests here. And just as it has had core interest in pressuring Israel to stop selling advanced weapons technologies to China, which they tried to do on a number of occasions over the last 20 years, I think it may be time to start pressuring them to be much more restrictive on who they sell the surveillance technology. And, you know, the U.S. government is not blameless here either. Reuters uh, a couple of years ago had a, an amazing revelation about the so-called Project Raven, which was uh, a, an operation by former NSA operatives that went to the UAE and helped them track dissidents and uh, journalists in that country with um, at least a tacit knowledge of the U.S. government. So we need to come to terms with our own policies when it comes to export controls of both the knowledge and the technologies, but we also need to start pressuring others that are playing in this. And by the way, Israel is not the only one. There are companies in Germany and Italy and other places that are doing essentially the same things. And we need to figure out um, the right approach to have standards across allies for who should get access to these capabilities, because not all of this capability is bad. Clearly, someone has been used for legitimate purposes to track terrorists, to track criminals, and others, and, and that should, should continue. Intelligence agencies, after all, and law enforcement agencies do need to do investigations, uh, but clearly a number of them are using it for, for ways that are contrary to our values and uh, contrary to our beliefs in, in human rights. So finally, I, I want to talk about a detail in the Washington Post that bears on the application of these technologies to U.S. persons, the Post reported that U.S.-based telephone numbers are sort of off-limits to NSO group Pegasus technology. Matt, how does that work, and what do we conclude from it? Right. So iPhones are not materially different uh, if they're using a, a U.S. phone number versus a non-U.S. phone number. So what's clearly happening here is not that NSO could not, in principle, target these devices. It's that they, they have chosen not to, and they have designed their systems to prevent their customers from targeting 
people with US telephone numbers wherever they happen to be in the world, and also people that are uh, outside the US with non-US phone numbers whilst they are physically within the United States. The software it appears to be designed so that uh, uh, when it detects those conditions are live, it stops collecting data. I think that's sort of a, a very interesting thing because it sort of gives us an insight that NSO wants to explicitly exclude this. It wants to you know, avoid upsetting the US government. And I think that also gives us sort of some indication that you know, government level diplomacy, rather than just mere technological like prevention, does actually have a, a role to play and does actually do some measure of protection. Uh, you know, it, it feels to me a little bit analogous to, you know, a lot of Russian malware, for instance, will choose not to, quote unquote, detonate on devices that have Russian keyboards installed. Uh, it's not because they can't, it's because they choose not to for reasons that are not purely technical. And I think that's sort of a, a very interesting observation here that NSO has chosen that it does not want to upset the United States. Perhaps that's because they don't want to be indicted. Perhaps that's because they don't want to have, you know, a hostile relationship with the United States for, you know, uh, uh, the safety of their own executives and not to, you know, get the NSA targeting them. But I think that is sort of an interesting observation. It almost suggests, Dimitri, that NSO Group is sensitive to the point that you just made that, uh, you know, maybe the heat is less on them if they are merely affronting our values, as you put it, but not affronting them with respect to our people. In other words, the bet is we care a great deal less about surveillance of journalists and opposition activists in the abstract than we do about those people if they happen to be U.S.-based or carrying U.S. phones. Do you think it's a good tactical judgment on their part, or is it, you know, likely too clever by half? I'm sure that's what they're thinking. I don't think it will work. All it will take is yet another Khashoggi type of story of someone who has been brutally murdered as a result of surveillance uh, or enabled by surveillance from a technology like NSO, and then the pressure will be immense. Political pressure, public pressure from journalists and the like, and they will not be able to wave it off. So it's only a matter of time before this comes crashing on their heads if they don't change course. We are going to leave it there. Dmitry Alperovich, Matt Tate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Setu. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the socials. Leave us a rating and review. Buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and if you want an ad-free version of this podcast, join our Patreon at patreon.com lawfare. And as always, thanks for listening.